you, Tom, and the rest of the elders. Good morning to everybody here in the auditorium. Hello to everybody over in the venue and everybody online. Thank you again to Tom and to Scott Porter, who's over in the venue, who had a similar comments. We are so grateful and thankful for our elder team. We have a fantastic elder team here at E-Free that I can promise you that when you go to seminary or when you read a leadership book, um, I have yet to read one that says what to do in the middle of a pandemic with your church. And so this, this team of men has done a fantastic job. And to a man, they pour themselves out to serve and to care for you and for us. That their heart is to help us to love and know Jesus more, to guide us and direct us uh, towards that, towards loving each other well. And they have done a tremendous job over the last uh, 12 months, that it's been an incredible uh, task that they've been given, and they've done an incredible job. And so um, please, would you join me in saying thank you to all of them? And with that, I also want to say thank you to Pastor Adrian, that he's part of the elder team, but he has done a tremendous job of leading and um, directing our staff. That again, in seminary, there is no class on what to do in the middle of a pandemic. And yet he has done a tremendous job of encouraging the staff, of equipping the staff, of coming alongside the staff and all of us. And so I'm very thankful for his leadership during this time that has been, um, as we've heard many times, and we're probably very exhausted, but unprecedented. So... Um, it's just been tremendous to serve underneath him and the elder team the last 12 months. Yes. So my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at E-Free. If you're a guest with us this morning, whether it's here in the auditorium, um, in the venue, or online, we're so glad that you were with us today for this church service. We want you to know that we hope that you find um, the church to be welcoming, inviting, that people are friendly and kind, and that you find a place to belong with us here at eFree. I want you to know that one of the driving principles of our church is that every person matters. And so we hope that you experience that through the worship, through the message, through the interaction with volunteers, in the, whether it's in the parking lot or when you walk in or in the cafe, wherever it is that you experience that you matter. Because you matter to God. Because you matter to God, you matter to us. And so we hope that you experience that with us this morning. So we are in the Gospel of John, and this is a whole series about just the Gospel of John. It's pretty straightforward. And we are going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and we are up to John chapter 2. But before we dig into those, would you please imagine with me? Imagine that you just got done with a wedding, that it wasn't your wedding, you're a guest, and now you got to the wedding reception. And you're getting settled in. They have a round table, black tablecloth, beautiful centerpiece. They have the classic water on this side, iced tea on this side, silverware, knives, napkin in the middle. You take your napkin, you smooth it into your lap. You lean over to your neighbor to find out how do they know the bride or the groom. In the background, country music is playing because that's what the bride and groom like. (laughs) And the music cuts out. So you look over at the DJ. The DJ announces that the wedding party has arrived. The bride and groom come in, Mr. and Miss, whoever, they get introduced, and then the wedding party comes in, uh, bridesmaids and groomsmen, and they do their things like they always do when they walk in. And then they get settled at the head table, bride and groom in the middle, their friends on either side. You begin to tinker glass because you want them to stand up and kiss. They stand up, they lean in, and the music cuts out again. You look over at the DJ like, is this the worst DJ of all time? You're ruining the moment. But it's not the DJ. There's some strange guy there with a microphone. And he says, you guys need to leave. This is not your wedding reception. You're like, this is a weird joke. Why are you doing this? People are confused. Nobody moves. 
So he says it again. This is not your wedding reception. You need to leave. So the groom and the groom's family and the rest of the families are going, no, this is our wedding reception. We booked this place. And he says, no, you didn't. Your, your credit card, it got declined. I never heard from you again. So I moved on. I rebooked it for another wedding party that will be here in 30 minutes. This is their reception. You have to leave. The bride bursts into tears. People are angry. People are frustrated. They don't know what to do. But it's clear there's no, you can't stay. So people begin collecting their coats and their jackets. They move out onto the curb. But there's a short conversation about, you know, should we have a reception here? Should we do it in the parking lot? What do we do? The decision is there's nothing to be done. You get in your car and you drive off and you've been one of the world's shortest wedding receptions. So I ask you to imagine that this morning because we're going to read about a wedding that Jesus goes to that was this close to having a similar story. But Jesus shows up and as um, the Lord of heaven and earth, he rescues the celebration. And he saves this couple from embarrassment, from shame, he saves the guests from dishonor. So we're going to dig into that this morning. But before we do, what I want you to know about this morning is we look at these verses, we're going to see one, that Jesus is Savior of the world. That part of what Jesus is going to do at this wedding is to reveal that I am the Savior of the world. The second thing is that it's going to show us that Jesus cares not just about the big life and death moments of our life, but he cares about even the small moments in our life. And then the third thing it's going to show us is that though Jesus cares about all these things, we better come to him with an air of humility. We better come with a position of humility that if we come trying to command him like he's our butler, things are not going to go well. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into the verses. Father God, I thank you for all my friends here in the auditorium and over in the venue and online. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning in a powerful way in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. God, for those of us that have come thinking we can command you and direct you, God, would you bring us to a place of repentance? For those of us that have come convinced that you don't care about the little details in our life, that, God, you care about the big salvation issues, but when it comes to the little ones that you're not so interested, God, I pray that you would help us to see we can take all things to you. And, God, for those that maybe are here this morning and they're curious, but they don't know if you really are the Savior of the world, God, I pray that you would use this story, you would use this event that happened in history to move them towards a place of trust and faith in you. pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to John chapter 2. John's in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you land in Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to the right, you'll find John. If you get to Acts, Romans, or Corinthians, go to the left, and you will find John. Now, we are going to, next week, be in John 2, chapter 12, verse 12. And so a pro-Bible tip for you is that if you take a bookmark and you put it where we finish today, it's really easy to find your place for next week. So... While you guys are flipping there, I want to show you John 20, verse 30 through 31. You don't need to flip there in your Bible. It'll be up on the screen. So this is John's purpose statement for why he wrote the Gospel of John, that he made decisions when he was deciding, what miracles am I going to keep? What events in Jesus' life am I going to share? And this is his purpose statement. This is how he made his decisions. So in John 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs and the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he says, this is my purpose, 
that every time I made a decision about what miracle I was going to keep or which miracle I was going to have to leave out, he said, I was deciding based on what was going to help people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That my goal was for people to see that he is the Savior of the world, that he has come to rescue and to redeem and to save. So he says, when I put something in here, I'm building my case that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Savior of the world, or the Messiah is the term that he uses. But he wants his readers to know, he wants us to know, that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. Because the Jewish people were waiting for this Savior that was going to come, and was going to rescue, and was going to redeem. And John is saying, you don't have to wait anymore. He says, that Savior has come, and now you can put your trust in him. And he says that when you put your trust in him, it says you will have life in his name. And so the first takeaway this morning is that John wrote his gospel so that we would believe and we would receive Jesus as Savior, as Lord and Savior. That we would not just believe that he is the Savior of the world, but we'd also receive him as Savior. We'd receive him as Lord. So as Pastor Adrian was talking about last week, that we would not just put our trust in him, but we would let him have lordship over our life or direction over our life, that he would get to guide and direct us, that he would get to instruct us in how we should live and how we should view the world around us. And this is John's goal, that when he puts something there, he's putting it there so we would believe and receive Jesus. So now let's go to John 2, verses 1 through 3, and see this first um, sign that he's going to give that Jesus is the Savior. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So let's unpack these verses. So it starts by saying, on the third day. I think when he, what, John, what John is meaning is he's being three days after he meets Jesus. So three days ago, he was walking with Andrew, following John the Baptist, and Jesus walks by, and John the Baptist turns around, and he says, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John, the author, and Andrew immediately leave John the Baptist, and they start following Jesus. And then their disciples, they begin to multiply, that John and, John and Andrew both get their brothers, Peter and James. And then they go get Philip and Nathaniel, and their group expands. And then three days after that, Jesus takes them to a wedding. And they get to this region called Galilee, and in the region of Galilee, there's a village called Cana, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus was invited. So it seems as though the bride or groom is either a relative or a family friend of Jesus and Mary. And so there's this celebration that's occurring. There's singing, there's dancing. They're celebrating two families coming together to become one. And Jesus is sitting at a table with his disciples, and there's these other tables with other wedding guests, and the wedding runs, runs out of wine. And so Mary becomes weaving through the guests over to where Jesus is at with his disciples. And she leans to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. So we need to do some background work. Because this doesn't seem like maybe it's a huge deal in our day as it is in their day. So in their day, the first thing you need to know is that wedding celebrations could last up to a week. That their receptions could go up to a week. They'd be sometimes three days, sometimes a week. That in our time period, today, if you go to a wedding reception and it goes from 6 p.m. to 1 in the morning or midnight, like that's a long wedding reception. And this time period, they're like, okay, we're going for days. We're celebrating. This is a major get-together, a major celebration festival in the village when someone gets married. The next thing you need to know 
is that the families were expected to provide refreshments, expected to provide hospitality to all the guests for the entirety of the wedding reception. That they were expected that we were going to provide them food, water, wine, whatever the guests, whatever the party was providing, they were supposed to provide that for the entirety of the wedding reception. The, br- the bridegroom, we call him the groom, but the Bible uses the term bridegroom, he was expected to provide the wine for the reception. And then the last thing you need to know is that if they ran out of this stuff, they ran out of food, they ran out of refreshments, it was a, it was a fairly big deal. That it would dishonor the guests because hospitality is a really big thing in this time period. And you, you were dishonoring your guests because you were saying that we don't care enough about you to provide you with hospitality. And it would bring shame on the two families, the bride's, groom, the bride's family and the groom's family, and then on the bride and the groom, their family, they would be, the first act of their wedded life would be an act of shame because they had failed to provide uh, hospitality to their guests. So in our time period, this is not a big deal because if you went, run out of cake at a wedding reception and then you meet those people at Walmart like 10 years later, you're not like, you're the people that didn't have enough cake at your wedding reception. Like, you're not going to do that. Like, you just forget about it. You might tell someone the next day, I was at this wedding reception. They didn't have enough cake. It was a bummer. We got them a toaster. They didn't give us cake. But, but in this time period, 10 years down the road, you were shamed because you did not provide hospitality at the wedding. So 10 years down the road, when you go to the market to get some fruit, people are going, you're the people that, that shamed us. You were the people that dishonored us, that we came to celebrate you, and you said, we don't care about you. And so it's a bigger deal in their time period. So what Mary causes me to ask is, who do I take my problems to? And who do you take your problems to? Because it's fascinating that Mary has a problem. She knows this group has an issue, and the first thing she does is she runs to Jesus. That she doesn't go knock on neighbor's doors and say, we're having a wedding celebration. They're running out of wine. We need more wine. Please, would you bring us some wine? Can I barter? Can I trade? What can we do? She doesn't do that. She runs straight to Jesus and she says, Jesus, would you please help? Jesus, would you please help? But I misspoke because I don't think she actually says please, which is why Jesus has a response that he has. That I think actually when we see Jesus' response, I think what Mary does is that Mary runs over to Jesus and she either strongly suggests or commands because she's Jesus' mother that he needs to do something. That there are those moments when your mom can say something that's not a command, but you're like, this is not an option. And I think that's what Mary does to Jesus. That she goes over to Jesus and she leans down and she says, they have no more wine. Do you know anybody who can do anything about that, Jesus? You know anybody who might be able to help them? You probably should do something about this. And I say that because of Jesus' response. So let's look at verse 4. Verse 4, Jesus responds, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. So this is a shocking response. My guess is that most of us, if we're not familiar with this story, we would expect Jesus to pop up out of his chair and say, Yes, Take me to the problem. I will fix it. Because a lot of times we have this, that's how we view Jesus, that he's ready and willing and quickly and able to come and help us and fix our problems. Whenever we say, come do this, he's like, yes. And yet his response to Mary is, woman, what you better know? That if my wife tells my son to do something, and he responds, woman, 
We're going to have some words. So what's going on? Why is Jesus calling his mom woman? So first thing you need to know is that this term woman in their time period is much more like the term ma'am today. That it's a formal response to any woman, and he is responding to her formally instead of as mother. So why would he do that? I think the reason is, is that Mary has come to him as his mother, and she's thinking that this is my little boy who needs to do what I want him to do. And Jesus is saying, I'm no longer just your little boy. That the time where I was just your little boy has passed, that I have entered into this new stage where I am the Messiah. That I'm gathering disciples, I'm gathering followers, that my picture of what my life is is much larger than what you have for me. And so he is reframing their relationship. She's coming to him as his mother, not as a woman in need of help. And he's saying, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? The reason he says that, I think, is because the bridegroom's responsibility is to provide the wine and he's not the bridegroom. So he's saying, why are you coming to me to provide something that that person over there is supposed to provide? Then he says this phrase, my hour has not yet come. So there's a lot of interpretations, but this is what I think he is saying with this. So Jesus, I believe, is saying that there is going to come an hour, not a literal hour, but a short period of time where Jesus is going to be underneath the authority of humanity, where he is going to answer and respond to humans. He's going to do their will, not his father's will. And in a sense, he's still doing his father's will, but he is going to be underneath the authority of humanity. And this comes during the time of his crucifixion. So in your handout, I gave you seven times that this phrase, hour, is used through John. That John keeps coming back to this phrase. And we're just going to today look at verse 17.1. So later this afternoon, you want to go look at those other ones. It's really helpful to see how is John, how is Jesus using this phrase, hour. And John says, uh, records in verse 17.1, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So if you know John 17, it's this prayer that Jesus is giving in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the Jewish religious leaders' guards are going to come and arrest Jesus, and they're going to take him off. He's going to stand trial. He's going to be um, mocked and beaten and spit on and ultimately executed. He's going to come underneath the authority of humanity, that he's not going to do what he wants to do. He's going to do what they want him to do. And so what I think he is saying to Mary is he's saying there is coming a time where I will do the bidding of humanity, but this is not that time. He's saying right now I'm here to do my father's will. I'm not here to do your will. Now the good news is that long before Mary knew they were going to run out of wine, God the Father knew they were going to run out of wine. And so God the Father has sent Jesus to this wedding to reveal his glory through Jesus. So now what's... uh, So... What this should cause us all to think about is how do we respond to Jesus? How do we go to Jesus with our requests? Because we must remember that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He's not our butler. That we need to go as people that are underneath Jesus' authority, not as people who have authority over Jesus. That sometimes in our hearts we can go to Jesus and we can say, you need to do this, or you must do this, or you have to do this. And we can go commanding him to do something for us. And that's what Mary was doing. And when Mary does that, his own mother does that, Jesus corrects that relationship. And he says, I'm the one with the authority. You're not the one that has authority over me. And so when we go to God, we have to go to him, not as uh, people of authority that get to command, they get to direct God and say, this is what you're going to do. We go as people that are humble and say, God, would you please help me? God, 
you are great and mighty and awesome and amazing and, and I am small, but God, would you help me because you care about me? So we must go with a humble attitude. And then verse five, Mary responds. His mother, Mary, so his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So it seems as when Mary was weaving through the crowd to get to Jesus, there were servants following behind her. And so the servants have been at this table watching this interaction between Jesus and Mary. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not come. And her response is to turn to the servants and to say, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And then she walks off into the party. Now, this is a fantastic verse for us to put into action in our own life. That if there's one thing we do, if we do it well, is to put into this verse, into action, to say that whatever Jesus tells me to do, I'm going to do it. That we would not go wrong in our lives if we said, whatever Jesus tells me to do, I'm just going to do it. That I can tell you, as I've thought back over my life, there are many regrets that I've had, but none of them have to do with doing something Jesus told me to do. That over and over and over again, as I've thought this week, trying to figure out, is there one, there has not been one that I can think of when Jesus said, I want you to go and do this, and I did it, that I've looked back now and said, man, I wish I hadn't done that. But you better believe there was many things he asked me to do that I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, please, God, can you find somebody else to do that? I don't want to do it. Even in the middle of doing it, I was like, oh, I don't like this. But now when I'm on the other side and I can see what God sees, I look back and I say, God, thank you. That there's not been a time that God's asked me to do something and I've done it that I've regretted it. There's been many times he's asked me to do something and I was like, ah, I don't really think I can do that. And not done it. And now I'm like, man, I wish I had done what Jesus asked me to do. Because my problem is way bigger or way worse than if I had done what Jesus asked. So Mary tells him to do whatever he tells, says do whatever he tells you. I would encourage us to do whatever Jesus tells us. So let's see what he's going to tell the disciples. I mean, he's going to tell the servants. Verse 6. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So there's these six large stone water jars that are some distance away, but he can see them. Because I, I think that Jesus is doing this entire thing from the table, that he's sitting there with his disciples and he's talking to the servants and they're going and they're doing what they need to do. And there's these six giant stone water jars and they hold anywhere between 20 to 30 gallons. So we have 120 to 180 gallons of some liquid and they normally hold water. So there's a lot of debate about why he chooses these jars that some people would say they're just the largest jars available, and so that's why he chooses them. Some would say that there's something bigger he's trying to convey in that moment, and so he chooses them specifically because they're ceremonial jars for ceremonial washing. So let's talk about ceremonial washing for a second. So there was um, laws that God gave in the Old Testament for how people needed to, uh, to remain clean, what they needed to do so that they would remain pure so they could go into the temple area and then the Jewish religious leaders added on to those laws so that they wouldn't break these laws. So they're like, okay, we don't want to break these laws, so let's add a whole bunch of extra laws so that you're over here and you're not even close to those laws over there. And one of them was you always had to wash your hands before you ate. And the reason was if you went out to the marketplace and you had touched something that a Gentile or non-Jewish person had touched, your hands would become unclean. If you ate whatever that, uh, you ate with unclean hands, then your whole body would become unclean. It was a bad deal. 
And so their belief was when you showed up at someone's house, there was water for purifying your hands that you would dip it out and pour it over your hands and you would wash it and then you'd be good to go. And so they have all these stone jars for washing all the guests' hands as they come in. And that's what they've been used for. And so it's possible that what Jesus is trying to do with the miracle he's about to perform and the reason he uses the ceremonial jars is he's saying that there's a change coming to the religious system. That what has been this religious system of washing the outside is about to go away. And there's a new system coming that transforms the inside. There's a new system that can transform the heart that wants to commit sin, not just the hands that actually commit the sin. So the old system, it can only wash away sin from the outside. It can do nothing about your desire to commit sin inside. But he's saying there's this new transformational system that he's bringing that is gonna transform people from the inside out. So it's possible that he's saying that. So now let's see what he's going to tell the servants to do. Verse 7 through 10, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So Jesus is sitting with his disciples at this table. He says to them, I want you to fill up all those jars. So they don't have a water tap in their house. So they have to go to a well someplace or a water pump, and they're going bucket after bucket, dumping them into these jars They're going to fill up 120 gallons of water. This is a lot of water that these servants are going, they're getting, they're filling them up, and then they're filling them to the brim. Now, when I think of brim, I think of if you have a glass cup and you put too much water in it, there's this point where there's more water in the glass than there's actual glass, and you have to, like, lean down and, like, drink it off the table, and it's, like, weird. Like, they're at that point. That's where they're at. And they go back to Jesus and go, okay, Jesus, we filled up all the water. They're all full of the brim. What do you want us to do? And he says, I want you to go over there. I want you to scoop out some of that water, put it in a cup, and then take it to that guy, the master of the banquet. Now, the master of the banquet is this guy who oversaw the celebration, oversaw the reception, and his job was to uh, lead them through each thing, do the toast, that kind of thing. He's the guy at the party who's like, okay, now we're going to do the chicken dance. He's like, that guy. It's like, I want you to take him to that guy. So uh, here's the deal. John does not say that Jesus got up and went over there and prayed over him, doesn't say that he touched it. It's possible that he did, and John just doesn't record it for us. But it seems to me that Jesus is doing this all from his seat, all from his table, because he doesn't want the rest of the party to know what he's done, that he wants the disciples to know, but he doesn't want the rest of them to know. And so I don't know if it's when they're talking and they're going back over there, it's been turned into wine, I don't know if it's when they put the ladle in that it turns to wine. I don't know if it's when they get, like, they're the last step away and the guy's like, okay, this is still water. This is not going to be good when I hand this guy a glass of water. I don't know when it is. But at some point between Jesus saying, talking to that guy there and the cup getting to the master of the banquet, it turns into wine. And the Bible is very clear that it turns into wine. It doesn't turn to juice, it turns to wine. Now, the Bible is also clear that we should not get drunk on wine. So there is not a prohibition about drinking wine, but there is a prohibition against drinking too much wine that we would get intoxicated. And there's a prohibition about we need to obey the instructions of our government. And so if you're not 21, then wine's not for you. But then the rest of us, we have to use the Holy Spirit 
to decide what's right for me. What is wise for me to do? Is it wise for me to consume this? Is it not wise for me to consume this? That there is not a prohibition, but there is uh, against drinking wine, period. But there is one against getting drunk. So they take the stuff, they take the, the wine to the master of the banquet. He drinks it. He lights up. Like, this stuff is amazing. This is the best. He goes over to the bridegroom. He puts his arm around the bridegroom, and he says, what are you doing? He says, I've been to a whole lot of these receptions. This is my job. This is what I do. I've been to a ton of these. And every single party that I've been to, they bring the best stuff they have out first when people have fresh palates and they haven't eaten anything, and they let people have that. And then as the party goes on, they bring the worst and worst stuff because people's palates get unrefined. People can't discern how good something is. And they bring out the bad stuff. It says, but that's not what you did. You saved the best until right now, and you brought it out. This is amazing. So two different things this teaches us about God. One, God makes good stuff. That when God does something, he does an amazing job. He doesn't just meet bare minimums. Like their bare minimum was they just needed to have wine. They needed to not run out. They could have had terrible, awful stuff that people were like, I can't hardly drink this, but you still have it, so we're fine. That's not what God does. God provides the best wine this party has, and he provides an abundance of it. And so I don't know what your problem is right now. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what's going on. But what I know is that when God comes through for people, he comes through in an amazing fashion. He goes above and beyond what they need. He doesn't meet bare minimums. He goes above and beyond. Now, there are instances. I'm not trying to promise you health and wealth and prosperity and all of that. Because there are instances when God um, waits and he waits and he waits because in the suffering, in the trial, in the difficulty, we learn, we grow. And so there's sometimes that he waits. Like Jesus could have done all this before that Mary had come over and the disciples wouldn't have known. All this would have not happened in such a way that people grew. And so there are moments where he waits. Moments where he doesn't come through necessarily the way we want him to come through. And yet he still does in an abundant fashion. The second thing that this shows us is that this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for you and for me. So, like, we've been getting this whole story from John's perspective at Jesus' table. But just sit with me for a moment on a table over here where we don't know what Jesus is doing. As far as we know, the party's been going on like normal, and there's maybe this little rumor that they're running out of wine. This might be bad. And now all of a sudden there's this abundance of wine and it's the best wine ever. So we're gonna give credit to the bridegroom, which is what the master of the banquet does. He goes to the bridegroom and he says, this is incredible. So Jesus does all of the work and the bridegroom gets all the credit. This is what happens for you and for me through the gospel. Jesus does all of the work and then by faith we receive all the credit. That Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life. It is an incredible life that he never once says no to God. Never once does he fall in this sin. Never once does he do something that is hurtful or mean to um, someone that, um, never once does he do something that would be considered sin. And yet he dies on a cross. He is wrongly accused. He is unjustly condemned. He is tortured and executed, and he absorbs the wrath and the punishment for all the times that you and I have spit in God's face and said, you were dumb, God. I'm smart. I will do what I want. He absorbs all the wrath, all the punishment, all the judgment for that. And then by faith, when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him, his work is credited to our accounts. 
that it goes from him to us so that God comes and puts his arm around us and says, here is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Who is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased? That the master of the banquet went and put his arm around the bridegroom and said, you did an amazing thing. He gets all of the credit. That Jesus doesn't stand up and say, behold, I have created the best wine this party has ever seen. He stays quiet. He sits at his chair. He lets the bridegroom take the credit for it. So Jesus does all the work, and through belief, we receive all the credit. Verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is John's comment. He says, This is the first time we saw him do something miraculous. And he says, As soon as we saw his glory, we saw that this is not a mere man who has good teaching but he is God in human form. He says, we believed in him. We said, we don't know who this guy is, but he is not just a guy. He is God, and we trusted him. So this whole miracle, that partly it's about coming to serve and to help and to care for this bride and this groom and their families, but Jesus doesn't make a big deal out of it with the whole group because it's for the disciples. That they have just left homes and families and lives, and he's saying, you're putting your hope in the right place. Now, when I read this, it makes me think of John 1, verse 14, from the previous chapter. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, The Word became flesh, and he went to a wedding. And the wedding ran out of wine. But because God the Father cared so much about this family, he sent his one and only Son to this wedding that his glory would be revealed and there would be wine that he performed a miracle to meet their needs. But he gave all the credit to the bridegroom. But we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only son who has come from the father. He was full of grace, and so he rescued and he helped and redeemed this family from their situation where they were going to be heaped with shame. They were going to dishonor their guests. He rescued them from that. But he was full of truth. So when his mother Mary came demanding that he do something, he responded to her saying, I'm no longer just your son. And he responded with truth, that he is full of grace and truth. And so what John is going to do is he's going to continue to unpack his pieces of evidence. These other times they saw the glory of Jesus revealed so that you and I would come to put our full trust and faith in Jesus. So quickly, we'll talk about the application. What do we do with this? The first thing we do is that John's whole purpose in showing us this is that we would see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That he says, this is when the disciples believe. This is when they put their hope, their trust in him. And so my question is, have you? Have you put your hope? Have you put your trust in him? And for most of us in this room, the answer is probably yes. So the question is, are you continuing to do that? Or have you gotten to the place where you trust him with your salvation, but you won't trust him with the day-to-day -day details of your life? That you're not convinced that he cares about those things, and so you're trying to figure them out. You're trying to navigate them on your own without Jesus' help. And you need to take those things to Jesus and say, you're not just my savior for salvation, you're my savior for today. Would you help me? Would you guide me? Would you direct me? For some of you in this room, maybe you came in this morning going, I'm not sure about this Jesus, but as you've been reading this, as you've been looking at it, the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart and you're ready to say yes. Yes, I want to trust this Jesus. Yes, I want to surrender my life to this Jesus. I want to follow him. And that's you, you can cry out to him and say, God, would you help? Would you rescue? Would you save? Would you redeem? And then for some of you, you're not there yet. 
you're still curious, you're interested, but you're like, I'm gonna need more than this one event at this wedding. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you keep coming back as John's gonna present more pieces of evidence and he's gonna build his case that Jesus is the savior of the world. Second piece of application is that Jesus cares deeply about even the small details in our lives. Whatever small details you're working through, whatever you're trying to struggle through, everybody in this room probably has a detail in their life. They're trying to figure out, what do I do with this? Jesus cares about that. You can take those things to him. And then the third thing is we can come to him with our requests, both great and small, but we dare not come to the God of all creation, the God of the universe, as though we have authority over him as though he is a servant that is here to do our bidding, as though he is our butler that we get to tell him to go and do this. But instead, we should come like humble, humble children who has a great and amazing heavenly father who loves to hear the requests of his children. And we come and we say, Father, would you please help? I have this detail and it seems small to me, but I can't figure it out and it's causing me anxiety or worry or frustration and I don't know what to do. Would you please help? And we come with our request and we lay it at his feet and we trust that he's gonna help us. Would you pray with me? Father God, God, I thank you for this wedding. God, I thank you that long before Mary knew that they were gonna be in trouble, God, you knew. And so you sent your son to rescue and to redeem. God, I thank you that when Mary approached Jesus as his mother who could command him around that he reminded her that he is a savior, that he is God, that he is not just her little boy. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that. God, for those of us who have been trying to command you, trying to tell you what to do, God, I pray that you would bring us to repentance, that we would be broken before you. And God, we would say that we're sorry. And that it would actually be the best thing for us because it would put us into the proper perspective of ourselves. And we would stop seeing ourselves as Lord who can fix all the problems in our lives and instead we would see ourselves as little children who has a great heavenly father who can rescue, who can redeem, who can help. And Lord, I pray for those people that are just in need right now. God, that they, they hear this and they say, well, that would be great if God would do that for me, but it doesn't seem like he ever does that for me. It seems like he does that for that person and this person and that person, but just not for me. God, I pray that you would come through for them in an abundant sort of way and they would experience your grace and your mercy in a powerful way. And they would be able to say, yes, I've seen the glory of the Son that's from the Father, the glory of God. God, I pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.